Now, if you will turn to Mark chapter 11, we will read the portion that we trust that we will be covering this evening. Mark chapter 11 from verse 1, I'm reading in the Revised Standard Version. And when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a coat tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door out in the open street. And they untied it. And those who stood there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, threw their garments on it, and he sat upon it. And many spread their garments on the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father, David, that is coming. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked round at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he taught and said to them, is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and sought a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the multitude was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Master, look, the fig tree which you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you receive it, and you will. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive 
your trespassing. Well, now this evening, we come to the third major division of Mark's Gospel after a break of a few months. These five chapters, from chapter 11 to chapter 15 inclusive, these five chapters cover the last seven days of Christ's earthly life. Mark has given ten chapters to the three years of Christ's earthly ministry and service. He gives five chapters, one whole third of the gospel, to the last week of his life. That is the importance and significance to Mark of what happened in those seven days. It was only one week. And it was a, a week like all other weeks, so far as time goes. Seven days of 24 hours each. But it was the one week upon which our whole eternity and destiny depend. Thousands of years of divine preparation lie behind this one week. Thousands of years of progressive revelation lie behind this one week. Thousands of years of type, of shadow, of prophecy lie behind these brief seven days. Indeed, every major detail within this one week had been foretold or foreshadowed in the Old Testament. The faith and patience, the hope and the aspirations of God's people through thousands of years human history centered on the events that took place in this week. For it was a week of all weeks in which we come face to face with the mystery of divine predestination. And I am not afraid to use the word predestination. If there is no other time, no other period in the whole of time in which we can see the mystery of divine predestination, we can certainly see it here. As we see the events of this week unfolding before our eyes, we see much that is satanic in origin, devilish in character, seemingly without God. We see the implacable and cruel hatred of men and demons, 
we see satanically inspired intrigue, cunning, devious, shrewd. We see hypocrisy of such dimensions that we can hardly take it in. We see godlessness and rank unbelief using the name of God and involved in the things of God. Thinly veiled by religion, we see a combination of religious, political, and military power that seems to be wholly master-minded by the devil himself. But, harking back to the last two weeks, those are not the true facts of the matter. For when we come to the end of this brief week of time, we discover that God has been working all things after the counsel of his own will and using these very things, dark, satanic, wicked and godless, to achieve that purpose. I suppose one of the most mysterious words were, is found in the message which Peter preached when filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. And verse 23, when he combined two things that it is for many theologians quite impossible to combine. He said, him being delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye by the hand of lawless men did crucify and slay. Two diametrically opposed things. Now there are of course those, and I had no argument with them, who uh, would immediately tell us that the um, source of everything is the foreknowledge of God. This of course is to limit God. It is theologically impossible to hold. And that's why the Apostle Peter says, first, by the determinate counsel of God. The source of it all was the determinate counsel of God. That's the determining factor. How the foreknowledge of God comes into it. How far God takes into account things and adjusts himself to it. We do not know. But what we do know is that in this week we are face to face with the mystery of divine predestination. The events of this week have been predestined. The means have been predestined. The work has been predestined. The outcome has been predestined. For our comfort and encouragement, we are face to face with the infinite, almighty God who works all things after the counsel of his own will. 
this, the end of this brief week, the purpose of the ages has been fulfilled. The work of our salvation completed, as we so often sing in that wonderful resurrection hymn, love's redeeming work is done. I have entitled this division, The Servant of the Lord Obedient Unto Death. For here we are face to face not only with the mystery of divine predestination, but with the essential character of true service, selfless love, absolute obedience, and a readiness to pay any price to make any sacrifice that God may be glorified and others saved. The Lord Jesus was no preacher of empty theories or impractical ideals. His life exemplified everything that he preached. He had spoken of giving up one's right to one's self and taking up one's cross. He had spoken of losing one's life in order to gain it. We find those two particular references in Mark chapter 8 verses 34 and 35. He had dem demonstrated this again and again in all his service up to this point. His was a life truly laid down from the beginning in his baptism, in the unceasing, selfless service he has rendered at all times to all people for three years, in his turning back to us from the transfiguration in glory. We have seen that the principle of all his service is Calvary, nothing less. Calvary was not something that came at the end of the Lord's life and ministry. It was something that came at the beginning when he was baptized. And when the Holy Spirit came upon him in the form of the sacrificial dove, to enable him to lay down his life again and again and again and again until finally in this last week he laid it down supremely. It is as if now we see him gather it all up, all the love, all the grace, all the compassion into the absolute and supreme sacrifice of himself to the death of the cross. His real work now begins. His real service now begins with this week. For him, service meant Calvary. And I have never failed to have been moved 
to see the way in which the Lord Jesus moved forward simply with profound dignity to his appointment with death. And as we behold him, the love he expresses, the selfless service he betrays, the character that is his, the inherent majesty and glory which shine out of him, we can understand why heaven is heaven. I fail to understand people who think that heaven is going to be boring. Such people have never caught a glimpse of the Lord Jesus Christ. They have only a warped idea, a caricature in front of their eyes of what God and what Christianity means as portrayed in so many of us. But if heaven takes its character from its king, if heaven takes its character from the Lord Jesus Christ, then I understand why heaven is heaven. If this is the kind of person who has come to the throne, and if this is the kind of person in whose hands authority and power are going to reside, then I understand why heaven will be. And I also understand why God can be satisfied with no other likeness, no other character, no other life, and no other kind of service than that which we see in the Lord Jesus Christ. As far as God is concerned, if it is not the same kind of the same order as that it, which we see in the Lord Jesus Christ, God says that will not get into heaven because it would turn heaven into hell. That's why. This is why God is absolutely insistent that I must decrease and he must increase. Why there must be more and more of the Lord Jesus Christ in me. Why Christ in us is the hope of glory. Why there must be more and more capacity for that glory. Why God is prepared to put us through so many difficulties and trials. And lead us sometimes strange and inexplicable ways. In order to get the very maximum of this character. Which is going to fill heaven and earth one day. You and I will be eternally thankful to God for any dealings he has had with us which have been painful, hurtful, and sometimes quite inexplicable. If at the end of it, it has produced something of himself in us 
the kind of service we see in the Lord Jesus, the kind of character we see in Him, that likeness, that life, that nature, we shall be eternally grateful to God for anything He chose to do with us that produced even an inch of such character. When one day we see things as we have to see them, when one day we see things as they truly are, they really are, then there will be no call for greater joy and thanksgiving than that God was prepared to trust us with things we could not understand if it meant that there was more and is more eternally of the Lord Jesus Christ to be marveled at in us. Well, well, I want to say something else about this before we leave it. I want to say this, that God will never rest until he sees the perfect likeness and image of his Son in us. Now to me, that is one of the most wonderful things in the Word of God. For having lived with myself now for some years, I discover that I am a very obdurate and obstinate person who does not believe the Lord easily and does not yield to the ways and dealings of God easily. And therefore it is no small comfort to me to know that God with all his foreordaining power, his predestinating power lies behind this conforming of me to the image of his son and of you. Someone says, well, they find that rather hard to really accept. But I turn you to Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also foreordained to be conformed to the image of his son. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. How wonderful that is. That God will not rest in this great work he's taken on. It is one thing for him to have got the Lord Jesus Christ. It is one thing for him to have found like father, like son. To have said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased for heaven to have opened upon the Lord Jesus Christ, for the glory of God to shone out, not upon him, but out of him, like the sun in full strength. I find it an even more wonderful thing. Perhaps it's more self-centered, but I find it even more a wonderful thing that God says he will not rest till he's got the same character, the same likeness, same kind of service in mean and ugly, worthless creatures such as you and me. 
but for our comfort, there it is. This is the week. What God did in these brief seven days laid an eternal foundation upon which the Spirit of God will work and work and work, move again and again and again, commit himself to again and again and again, a foundation which is an absolute and complete salvation, which is a justification which can know no challenge from heaven or earth or hell. Seven days. Of course, the work was done in hours. But here we are on the threshold of the seven days. Well now, let's start to look at this division. Mark chapter 11. Verse 1 to 11. I have entitled this, the only thing I can entitle it, the triumphal entry of the servant of the Lord into Jerusalem. Nor is that title, the servant of the Lord, just put there because I've used it all the way through Mark, but because it is a messianic title, as any of you who know anything about the book and prophecies of Isaiah surely know. The entry, the triumphal entry of the servant of the Lord into Jerusalem. Now we must understand that this triumphal entry into Jerusalem was not, as some of us imagine, a sudden decision of the Lord taken on the spur of the moment. A great sort of popular surge of emotion which so affected him Luke tells us that it was at this very point that he broke down and cried on his way down into the city as he came over the crest of the Mount of Olives and saw the city spread out before him. And some people have got the idea that it was some popular surge of emotion which so affected the law that he allowed himself to be put on a colt and that he sort of rode forward with everyone yelling their heads off into the city. But it was no sudden decision taken on the spur of the moment. It was a deliberate decision constituting a deliberate channel. In his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Christ outwardly, publicly and officially claimed to be the long-expected and long-awaited Messiah. In his ministry, over the three years, he had led his own disciples into that discovery, but had been reticent when it came to any public and official claim. You remember again, he said, tell no one. People had called out him son of David. Messianic title. They didn't call any prophet son of David. Son of David meant Messiah. The woman of Samaria had said, certainly led his own privately into such a discovery of himself. 
but never outwardly, publicly, officially, had he claimed to be the Messiah. Now he rides into Jerusalem as the son of David, the Messiah. This was an open and deliberate challenge to the Sanhedrin and the temple authorities, to the whole Jewish establishment, to either accept him or reject him, finally. The gauntlet was thrown down, and it was the Lord who threw it down. By riding into Jerusalem, he brought the whole thing out into the open. Now, they'd either got to say yay or nay. What happened on that day was a direct fulfillment of a messianic prophecy in Zechariah, chapter 9 and verse 9. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, thy king cometh unto thee, is just, and having salvation, lowly, and riding upon an ass, even upon a coat, the foam of an ass. Well, let's just look at the story. Coming to up from Jericho, from Jordan, they had come to Bethany on the southeastern slopes of the Mount of Olives, and a little farther up, nearer to Jerusalem, Bethphage. Today, Bethany is still there. You can visit it. The real Bethany is probably many, many yards under the surface. Bethphage has vanished altogether, except for one little monastery that's supposed to mark the point where the triumphal march into Jerusalem began. Christ commanded the two of his disciples to go into the village where they would find an untried coat tethered. They were to bring it to him. If anyone was to ask any question, as to what they were doing, they were simply to say that it was the Lord's business they were on. The coat would be returned immediately after the need for it was fulfilled. This the two did in simple faith. And when they brought the coat to Christ, they threw their outer gowns. You know, in those days they had undercoats, and your undergarments, and then you had your sort of under gown, and then you had a large outer gown in cooler weather, especially in Jerusalem, which is 3,000 feet above sea level. You wore it. They threw off the outer gown and put it over the coat, draping it over, make, making a kind of improvised saddle and dressing. The Lord then rode into Jerusalem on a wave of tremendous popular enthusiasm and emotional goodwill. Now, of course, people will immediately say, but how were all those people there? Well, of course, the whole road, it was the main road, no longer used now, but it was the main road that went up from Jer Jericho, up through Bethany, Bethphage, and then down the other side. So all the pilgrims coming up from Galilee to the Passover, which was to commence that week, 
later in the week, were all pouring into Jerusalem, country folks starting to come up, apart from his own party and their disciples. People cut down branches and trees and bushes in the fields, laid them in the narrow way. Others carpeted the road with their outer girt gowns, so carried away by emotion, they tore off their outer garments and flung them down in all the many colors, all, all the way down uh, the narrow lane or road. Still others waved branches before and after the Lord, and the whole hillside rang with the cries, Hosanna. The people knew exactly what they were doing. They were acclaiming the Messiah and the coming kingdom of God. If you read in verse 9 and 10, these are the words they use. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that is coming. Hosanna in the highest. Even if the people were not too clear as to what they were saying and what was happening, some, I'm quite sure, some deep intuitive witness in them bubbled up into the open. The words they used could be used of no other than the Messiah. It was a well-known messianic prophecy in Psalm 118. We'll come to that in a moment. By the time they reached Jerusalem, and don't forget that the Mount of Olives is very much in view for a large part of Jerusalem. By the time they had reached Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. It's no wonder that the temple authorities were deeply embarrassed and could scarcely veil their fury. If you read in Matthew chapter 21, Matthew 21, Verse 9 to 11. We read the crowds that went before him and that followed him shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? The crowd said, This is the prophet, Jesus of Nazareth in Galilee. Luke 19. Verse 37. Luke 19. Verse 37. And as he was now drawing near at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they'd seen. What a mute praise meeting it must have been. It must have traveled right across Jerusalem. Saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees and the multitude said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were sound, the very stones would cry out. That's what I mean by there being a witness inside the people. They couldn't help it. The ordinary, open, naive people, there was a witness inside of them. They couldn't help themselves. Well, um, it was by then quite late, and the Lord, entering the temple, looked round on the whole scene. I like the way the New English Bible puts it in verse 11. He entered Jerusalem, went into the temple where he looked at the whole scene. But as it was now late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now mark that. He went in 
and he looked at the whole scene. I want you to mark that very, very carefully. Little did the temple authorities and religious leaders realize that the Lord had suddenly come to his temple and that those eyes of fire had seen everything that was to be seen. Malachi chapter 3 tells us suddenly the Lord shall come to his temple. And then it goes on. Who shall abide the day of his appearing? For he shall be like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He shall sit over the sons of Levi. And the silver is purified and gold is purified. So he will purify them. It was partly and the Lord Jesus went into that the temple. Now, we must make this point. The Lord had, of course, been many times into the temple and well knew what was there. So why did he need to go in and take uh, a look at the whole scene? The reason is this. He now came officially as God's Messiah. Judgment was to begin at the house of God. So having made the claim publicly with him to Jerusalem, now he goes to the temple and looks at it. And those eyes see everything. It is often pointed out in our, by our hymn writers, by preachers, how fickle the crowds were. One moment they cried, Hosanna! And the next, they cried, crucify. That our fallen human nature is fickle, no one of us, I'm sure, will deny. It's an undeniable fact. Nevertheless, we ought to point out that it is emphasized again and again, and there is no excuse for anyone, through the New Testament, that the ordinary folk were very much with Christ. Many of the people in the great crowd on the Mount of Olives would have been Galileans and other country folk coming up for the Passover. Whereas the crowd at Christ's judgment would have been largely, probably, largely made up of Jerusalem folk in the know. Because it was a very sudden and hurriedly um, pushed trial. Indeed, I think there is more than a little suspicion that it was a hired rabble, very largely. Now, if you turn to Mark chapter 11, Mark chapter 11, the chapter we're in, and uh, verse 18 and verse 32, we read these words. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and sought a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the multitude was astonished at his teaching. Verse, um, verse 32. But shall we say from men, they were afraid of the people, for all held that John was a real prophet. So evidently everyone understood John, and many would have known what John said about the Lord Jesus. Mark 12, verse 12. 
and they tried to arrest him, but feared the multitude, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. They feared the multitude. They couldn't arrest him. That shows how much the people were with the Lord Jesus. And then verse 37, same chapter. Day, and the great throng heard him gladly. The great throng heard him gladly. Last part of the chapter. If you turn to Mark Matthew 21 and uh, verse 46, we have the same thing reiterated. But when they tried to arrest him, they feared the multitudes because they held him to be a prophet. So it is quite clear that the ordinary folk were very much with the Lord Jesus. The Sanhedrin deliberately judged Christ at night, partly because they were so afraid that the people might demonstrate. In Mark 14, uh, verse 1 and 2, we read, I'll just read verse 2. Uh, last part of verse 1. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be a tumult of the people. They were so afraid that if they did some, take some action against Christ, there'd be a riot of those that sympathized. Now, we must always remember this. So, don't let's just say that everyone was so fickle, it's perfect too, we saw, we see all the disciples, how fickle they all were. But the people who cried out Hosanna to the Lord are not necessarily the people who cried a little later, crucified. There may have been some of them. There are just a few things I'd just like to note about this before we pass on to the next point. Just one or two things that I think are helpful to us. First, let's note the ass. Verse 2. If you compare it with Matthew 21, verse 7, you will find that it was the, uh, the, the she-ass and the coal, the foal of an ass. And the Lord said, bring them both. Um, the ass was not considered unbecoming to royalty. Most of us think the Lord riding upon the ass, uh, a colt, foal of an ass, as something that denoted uh, uh, something very, very ordinary and humble. It's not so. Whilst the horse was used for military services and military conquests and the receiving of tribute and so on, the ass was always used by royalty for civil and peaceful purposes. And that's why Zacharias said that he comes with peace riding on an ass. It was quite an ordinary thing. Another thing I'd just like you to notice about this is that the Lord riding on, a, on, a, on the, the untried, unbroken colt was in itself remarkable. It could have flown him easily. Anyone who knows anything about those knows very well that you don't sit on an untried, unbroken colt. But here again we see him as the Lord of creation. And we remember that it was in the same gospel, Mark chapter 1 and verse 13 that we talk, and he was with the beasts when he was in the wilderness. Another little point. Have you noted the simple obedience of faith of those two disciples? How lovely it was. I mean, when you think about it, we all take it as part of the story, but when you think about it, supposing the Lord said to you, now then, you go over to Twickenham, 
when you come there into the Richmond Road, just the bridge, you'll see a small mini, a Morris Minor. Uh, just to get in it, will you? And drive it. If anyone comes out the shop and says, what are you doing? Just say, this is the Lord's business. When he, he will bring it back immediately, when he's finished with it. What faith! Most of us would have been covered with sort of self-conscious fear and wonder, well, how you can't just say that to people? And just to try them, the people came out and said, what are you doing? So they didn't have an easy time of it. And they had to say the words, the Lord has need of him. How many great men God has, has called into his service through this word, the Lord has need of him. Willie Burton is one of them. Johnny Cockrell is another that I can think of, both called into full-time service through this word about the ass. The Lord hath need of him. And God seems to sometimes call his greatest by means of this little phrase. But what simple faith. And then I think of the people who owned the cult. I think they had faith too. Just to be told, the Lord has need of it. And they said, all right. Or they were, may not have even been there. Someone went in and said, someone's taken the cult. Oh, who? Oh, they said, the Lord has need of it. Oh, well, all right. It's faith. Simple faith. And then the other thing I want you just to note about this uh, few verses is the word Hosanna. I don't think anyone really knows who, uh, probably here just what it means. Hosanna. It's a Hebrew word. And it's the word says. We got the same root in Joshua. Or Hosea. Hosea. Hosh. Anna. So, uh, all it means is save now, or save we pray, or save we beg. Originally, it was a prayer. And uh, then it came to be a common um, phrase used on public occasions of joy or acclamation. Not quite like God save the Queen, but more like hooray! So when everyone said hip hip hooray, uh, they said, Hosanna! And they all yelled it at the top of their voice. Now, just to get you completely into the picture, in the great festivals in the temple, the whole crowd used to cry, Hosanna. Hosanna. The whole crowd, as well as the choirs, especially in the Feast of the Tabernacles. In fact, the last eighth day of the Feast of the Tabernacles was called the Great Hosanna. And even the branches they waved at the Feast of Tabernacles were called Hosannas. So this all brings us a much more thing. Something was being completed. Something was being done here when they cried out, Hosanna. Now again, for those of you who are real Bible students, the phrase came, strangely enough, or perhaps not at all strangely really, from Psalm 180. And verse... 25. And here it is exactly in Hebrew. Verse 25. Save now, we beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, we beseech thee, send now thy prosperity. The first phrase there is Hushana. Save now. And then listen, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. 
We have blessed you out of the house of God. That's exactly the words they used. Isn't that amazing? If you turn back to Mark 11 now, and uh, verse 9 and 10, we read, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were taking it from what is called the great Hallel. That is Psalms 113 to 118. These were the great psalms that were all sang, sung at the great festivals. They were the great triumphant psalms that were sang by the great united choirs. Well, isn't that rather wonderful? And then we find a little further on in, in Mark 12 and verse uh, 10 and 11, the very stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing its marvelous in our eyes. This is also from Psalm 118 and verse 22 and 23. So it's all rather wonderful when you see it like that. So now, whenever you see that little word, Hosanna, in the highest, remember, it's a great cry of acclamation. Hooray! Or say, or however else you like to put it. We see then the Lord Jesus as God's anointed one, the Messiah, the King, coming into Jerusalem. And that in no way contradicts Mark's emphasis upon him as the servant of the Lord. He is King in order to serve. He is Messiah in order to serve. Not, as some imagine our Lord Jesus, King so that he may receive service. Messiah, so that he may, in a lordly way, receive service. This is not like our Lord Jesus. Yes, he will receive our service. We shall bless him and bless him and bless him again. And he, there will be no peak, no place higher in heaven than him. But he's there because it is his character to serve. He is king in order to serve us, to serve God and to serve us. He is Messiah in order to serve God and to serve us. It is the character, to go back to some of our first studies in Mark, it is the character of divine love and divine sonship to serve. We are thus at the very heart of God's concept of anointing, God's concept of authority, God's concept of kingship. It is not that we might lord it over others, that we may display our authority, that we may regale ourselves in high position, that we may become remotely autocratic, but rather that our very authority, our very position, our very anointing are the means by which we serve God and others. Well now, that's this section. Let's move on to this. We will not be able to get to the end of it, but we'll cover the first part of it, shall we, uh, this evening. The rejection of the servant of the Lord by the Jewish people 
and God's rejection of them. The challenge had been made by Christ. It was now too long, it was not too long before it was taken up. The Jewish establishment had for the most part already made up their minds. They had not only rejected Christ, they wanted some means whereby he could be put away, he could be destroyed, and they were seeking the occasion and the means. There are three things we shall deal with the first tonight. The rejection of the barren fig tree. Oh, the storm that has been over this little fig tree. The rejection of the barren fig tree. Chapter 11 from verse 12 to 26. I don't suppose there are many parts of the word that one hears when one preaches the gospel to unsaved people flung in one's face more by intelligent people than this little fig tree. I get it thrown at me again and again. Perhaps that surprises you. There's been a lot of controversy over this, this miracle, especially from liberal scholarship. It centers on three matters. First, I hope I don't sow any unbelief in anyone's heart on this matter. The absolute unreasonableness of looking for fruit out of season. They say this was springtime, this was Passover. Mark actually emphasizes it. He says, for it was not the season for figs. Some dear Christians have bent over backwards trying to tell us that there were little knobs that appeared in figs early in the year and that these were the things he was looking for. Others try to tell us that some figs appear uh, before the leaves and therefore because the leaves were there it meant there was going to be no fruit. But I think it's all bending over backwards trying to explain something. I don't know why they need to. It's rather like me going out in January or February to the apple tree and getting very angry with it because there are no apples on it, cutting it down. I'm hungry, you've got no apples. You come down. The second criticism is the selfishness, the arrant selfishness. That's how one person in the, one of the congregations here one time put it to me. The arrant selfishness which this incident betrays on Christ's part. He was hungry, it is pointed out, and acted in an, or reacted in an altogether irritable and bad-tempered way when he could not get what he wanted. That's the second criticism. The third is terribly clever. And it is this, the completely negative and destructive character of this miracle. Now it is most extraordinary that the same liberal scholars are quite happy for frogs to be dissected in countless laboratories and in countless schools for children to be instructed. They don't seem to mind flowers being pulled to pieces and put under microscope for lessons. It all seems very...
very puzzling to me and somewhat inconsistent. The criticisms are, in my estimation, completely answered when it is recognized that Christ was acting out a parable. Acting out a parable. The fact that Bethphage means house of figs in Hebrew, that the cleansing of the temple comes between the cursing and the withering of the fig tree. All point to this. It seems to me much more in order if we'd had the withering of the fig tree brought straight on and the teaching concerning it, and then the cleansing of the temple. But no, we had that right in between because the Lord was deliberately acting out a parable. Indeed, the rest of Mark chapter 11, 12, and 13 are all centered in this theme of God's rejecting the nation because they have rejected Christ. The fig tree as the vine has always been the symbol of the covenant people of God. And what we have here is an acted parable concerning the Jewish people. The Messiah had come, God himself had come, looking for fruit, and found only leaves. We must never forget this lesson. Fruit is always the thing that concerns God, not leaves. Now, wherever you look in the Bible, you will find this. It may surprise you, but listen to uh, this biblical concept of leaves versus fruit. Matthew chapter 7, verse 16, talking about false prophets. By their fruits ye shall know them, not their leaves. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but the corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Therefore, by their fruit ye shall know them. Matthew chapter 3, uh, verse 10. And even now the axe lieth at the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherever you turn in the Bible, you will find God's main concern is fruit. Go right back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 10 and 11. And these are those immortal words we read. Listen. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called his seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth put forth grass, herbs yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit after their kind, wherein is the seed thereof upon the earth. And so it was. Whenever you go, you remember Genesis 49? <laughs> Joseph is a fruitful bough, a goodly tree, whose bough has run over the wall, bearing so much fruit. You read in Psalm 80 and uh, verse, Psalm 80, concerning the whole people of God. From verse 8, 
Thou broughtest a vine out of Egypt, thou didst drive out the nations and plantest it. Thou preparest room before it, it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with the shadow of it, the boughs thereof were like cedars of God. It sent out its branches unto the sea and its shoots unto the river. Why hast thou broken down its walls so that all that they that pass by the way do pluck at it? And so on. It's God's concern, fruit. Isaiah, chapter 5. You've got the same thing again. It's the question of fruit. Isaiah 5, verse 1 to 7. Let me sing for my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard, a very fruitful hill. He digged it, gathered up the stones thereof, planted it with the choicest vine, built a tower in the midst of it, and also hewed out a wine press therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. Everywhere you look, God's concern is not leaves but fruit. John 15, verse 16. Ye did not choose me, but I chose you and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth much fruit. Galatians 5, 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and so on. Colossians 1, verse 10. Bearing fruit in every good work. Wherever you look, God is after fruit. When you come to the end of the Bible, Revelation 22 and verse 2, we read of a tree of life bearing fruit, twelve manners of fruit. Wherever you go, it's fruit. Now note about the Lord's coming to, to um, uh, the fig tree. Three things. Back to Mark 11, verse 13, the first thing. He went to see if he could find anything on it. He went to see if he could find anything on it. The second thing, when he came, he found nothing on it. The third thing, no man eat fruit from thee henceforward forever. Verse 14. All this is an exact description of what happened when the Lord came to his own. And they that were his own received him not. Certainly, it exactly describes Mark 11, verse 11. I told you to note that. Now, let's go back to it and read it. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked round at everything, or when he had looked at the whole scene, it being late, he went out. It was the fig tree. He came to see if he could find any fruit. And when he came, he found nothing on it. The next day, judgment. It is interesting that the Lord Jesus said in the Matthew account of this very passage, God has taken away the kingdom from you because you have no fruit and will give it to a nation that will bring forth the fruits thereof. Fruit, it's fruit again. When the Lord had come to the temple, the very heart of the nation, the house of God, he had come to find the fruit which justified its existence. He found only the leaves of formalism, of traditionalism, of institutionalism. 
The life which alone produces the fruit had gone. Even worse, what God had intended to be a house of prayer for all nations had become an oriental bazaar and a thoroughfare from the city to the Mount of Olives and vice versa. True, the money changers were there to change the Roman coinage, which was considered to be pagan and humiliating, into the temple shekel, which God could accept. And most of the buying and selling was to do with animals and birds for sacrifice. Nevertheless, if you know anything about the East, we don't anything about these countries now, we can well imagine the abuse and graft which had grown up over years. In fact, in rabbinic literature, there is a certain name that comes up again and again, a house, a family, that had the rights to let stalls to traders. And they were well known for their graft and corruption. Become a synonym of evil and greed. The fact that the Lord Jesus said, you have made it a den of thieves, and I love the way Phillips puts it, a thieves' kitchen, a thieves' kitchen, um, uh, speaks volume. The Lord didn't use words lightly. When he said, you have made it a den of robbers, or as the New English Bible puts it, a robber's cave. saw something that perhaps wasn't so apparent. In white-hot fury, terrible to behold, which all those who saw it never forgot, Christ drove out the buyers and sellers, overturned the money changers' tables with all the cash on it, and the pigeon sellers stole must have been a scene of utter confusion and panic. Lowing oxen, bleating sheep, cooing down, people scrabbling about on the ground for the coins. Oh, what a scene. Yet who, we may well ask, was more qualified than the Lord Jesus to, uh, to act in such a manner? If someone had to judge the temple, who better than the one whose life had been filled with grace and truth, who was all that God ever meant by the one word, service. It was not some autocratic, yet divine despot that broke into the temple, driving out in a white-hot fury all those who perverted and corrupted God's house. It was the one in whose life all that God means by service, selfless, sacrificial, compassionate, was fully expressed and revealed. The next morning, as they passed the fig tree on the Mount of Olives, the disciples noticed that it had withered from the roots. It seems quite clear that the disciples did not at that time grasp the, the significance of what Christ had done. Now he interprets it. Now I want you all to get hold of this. With this we're closing. Now, get hold of this because it can mean a lot to you. The Lord interprets it. Verse 22 to 25. Have faith in 
God. He was not giving the method for destroying fig trees. As is so commonly supposed. That the disciples said, oh, look at the fig tree, it's gone. They didn't for one single moment see the significance of it. They didn't connect it with the cleansing of the temple, evidently till afterwards when the Holy Spirit brought all these things back to remembrance, when it came to be written down. As in so many other things, they were blind. But, listen to this. When they asked, the Lord said, have faith in God. I say unto you, whosoever will say to this mountain, be thou moved and cast into the sea, and will not doubt in his heart, but believe that it will be so, it shall be done. Now that sounds as if the Lord's only talking about fig trees. You can do anything. Shrivel up any fig tree. Well, of course you are. But that's not what the Lord meant. Do you know what he meant? He was going to the very root of the whole matter. Faith is the principle of fruitfulness. Faith is the principle of fruitfulness. Never get away from it. And you've learned the biggest lesson in Mark so far. Faith is the principle of fruitfulness. No faith, no fruit. You cannot have fruit without faith. Why? Well, I'll explain. Faith leads to life. Life leads to fruit. Now come back. It was the basic unbelief of the Jewish people, and especially the leaders, which had led this to spiritual lifelessness and barrenness. But far more than that, it was that unbelief which had led them to their rejection of Christ and thus to God's rejection of them. Now someone says, oh, you're reading something into all this. No, I'm not. I'm keeping very, very closely, actually, to the Word of God because I don't suppose it's of such great interest to many here. But you see, if you read in Romans chapter 9 and verse 30, this is what we read. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who follow not after righteousness attain to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, following after the law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith. But as it were by works, they stumbled at the stone of stumbling. Who is the stone of stumbling? Jesus it was rank unbelief that brought the rejection of the Messiah and God's rejection of the Jewish people. And don't let anyone uh, uh, think that we stand uh, inviolate. Here, remember that God says in this same passage concerning the Gentiles, that they will stay in the olive tree if they continue in faith. But if not, then remember the severity of God. And I sometimes think, when I see Christendom and so much of denominational Christianity, though evangelical, 
or even non-denominational Christianity, though evangelical. I sometimes wonder whether the day is not coming very near when unbelief underneath all our profession will not bring about a basic rejection of the Lord and therefore a rejection of them. And that the despised Jewish people will then come into their own and believe for the first time in generations. Well, maybe, maybe not. Maybe it's wishful thinking. But what we do know is this, that however we view the matter, faith is the principle of fruitfulness. Faith was substituted by hidden unbelief. Unbelief destroyed the life. Where there was no life, there was no fruit. And when the Messiah came, they reacted against him. They were not prepared to confess their condition and respond to him. Well then, what can we say? We can only say this, the long and sad story of the Jewish people began at this point. Until the time when the veil will be removed. And I, for one, am encouraged that in this same book, the Gospel according to Mark, he is the only one who says, Mark 13, concerning the coming of the Lord, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. In other words, I think that in judgment God remembered mercy and has put that little word, when the fig tree puts forth its leaves. So maybe there is a little bit of hope still left. And maybe that little bit of hope is found in Romans chapter 11 when it says these wonderful words from verse 25 where I would not, brethren, have you ignorant of this mystery, lest ye be wise in your own conceits, that a hardening in part of the fallen Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in, or the full number of the Gentiles become in. And so all Israel shall be saved, even as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer, he shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob, and this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. As touching the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as touching the election, the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake, for the gifts and the calling of God are not repented of. For as ye in time past were disobedient to God, but now have obtained mercy by their disobedience, even so have these also now been disobedient, that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now obtain mercy. For God hath shut up all unto disobedience, that he might have mercy upon all. Well, there we are. But just in case that has no lesson for you or me, Let's say this. There is a lesson here for us. Faith which is ever the gift of God, exercised in God, in his person, in his word, in his work, in his authority and power, always leads to life. And life always leads. Such faith, the gift of God, exercised in him, 
sees every obstacle to the fulfillment of God's purpose removed. No matter what those obstacles may be, however mountainous and however hell-bound, they are no match for God and His Christ. Well, we will leave it there. But let us just say one other thing. The Lord puts his finger on something which I fear many Christians would rather not see. That the mother of unbelief is bitterness. An unforgiving spirit, however it comes out, continual criticism, continual gainsaying. or loathing, or hatred, or whatever it is. What solemn words the Lord said, if ye have anything against someone, forgive them. Your father doesn't hear you, he said. I sometimes wonder how many prayers are never heard. For God's word is truth. God has no favor. Where there is bitterness or an unforgiving spirit, there is a closed heaven. The prayer is neither the prayer of faith, nor is it hers. And that's a very, very solemn thing, isn't it? Therefore, the word says, get it put right. Have faith in God. And if you find some obstacle to faith in God, inquire. Have I got an unforgiving spirit? Is there something hindering my prayer? May God help every one of us. And on a positive note, remember what the Lord says in verse 23. Whosoever shall say to this mountain, declaration, not just think, whosoever shall in his heart, you shall say. You burnt your boats behind you. You've said something. Concrete expression of faith. If we confess with the lips Jesus as Lord and believe in the heart that God has raised him, then you shall be saved. I will put it this way. If you confess with the lips the thing you trust for and believe in your heart that God will do it, it shall be done. Of course, you've got to know that it's of God. But you see what I mean? Concrete expression, declarations. What we were saying on the last week, we've got to declare things. Declare the unshakable facts. Declare the truth. Don't just keep it inside, bottled up so the heaviness comes down on us. But say it out loud. He is Lord. He's on the throne. His is the victory. He is my life. He is my salvation. I'm his child. Say it out loud. Like Fraser, many years ago, when he couldn't get through and was so bound and heavy, finally he went out on the hilltop, shouted at the top of his voice, He is Lord of all, till the valleys rang with it on every side, and the heaviness went, and the brass heaven opened. He declared something. Shall we pray?
now, Lord, there is so much in these few verses, so much, Lord, more than any of all of us could take. But we pray, Lord, that thou wouldst store it in our hearts and spirits and bring it to us, Lord, when we need it. And what we need, each one of us now, what we need as a people, Lord, we pray, bring it even now to us. Interpret to us by thy spirit. Apply it, Lord, by thy spirit. May thy word become flesh and blood. We ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ.